So it's Esther starting to read at chapter 9. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews also killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Asbatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arazai, Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrows were turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the day as a day, observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, 
he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days are called Purim, from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed and in every generation, by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out amongst their descendants. So Queen Esther daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim, and Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, And as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation, Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks uh, so much, Joe, for reading that. Um, And we're going to take a look at it. It is uh, is lovely uh, to be back with you all. Um, And... uh, it has been a big uh, week uh, for me, I should tell you. Um, I don't know if you, if you were able to be around last week, you'll have seen uh, some of the um, uh, uh, kind of festivities and the uh, service. Uh, if you didn't get to be there, um, it's, uh, it was very exciting. It was thank you to all of those who made the service possible and, and uh, made all the things afterwards possible as well. It was a, a great time. Um, it's been a really big week because... That was last Sunday. And then on Thursday, I discovered, to my great surprise, that I had also been made Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, which <laughs> seemed to be really kind of a surprise to me. It's increased my portfolio quite some way. Um, I've got two, two uh, quite large things to consider for the future. So it's, it's quite an exciting time. I value your prayers um, as, I, as I take this on. Um, there you go. That's... Uh, uh, <laughs> um, it is good to be back. This book of Esther, um, which we are going to bring together to an end, um, uh, this has nothing to do with us. Um, the book of Esther, um, the last two chapters are um, quite different to what has come before. Um, let, so imagine for a moment, you might have done this, there are two films that were recently uh, made, not too long ago, about the same event one is called uh, The Darkest Hour, uh, which has um, Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill. Um, the other is called Dunkirk. They both look at uh, the situation in 1940 and the threat to the soldiers who were all gathered on the beaches of northern France 
waiting to be, um, uh, to be rescued. They're both covering that event, but they are both very, very different um, in their tone and style. Um, if you've seen The Darkest Hour, they're both brilliant films. The Darkest Hour uh, is full of larger-than-life characters. Gary Oldman's Winston Churchill is very funny. Um, uh, Lily James is his secretary. There, there are some other larger-than-life characters. There are sort of goodies and baddies, and they, uh, the, the, the events unfold, and you see it through the perspective of particularly Churchill and what he was uh, enabling happen to enable this rescue from the, the beaches of, uh, uh, of northern France. Um, if you were then to watch that and watch Dunkirk, Dunkirk is the same events, but it is completely different. It is tense. Uh, it is set in the beach, around the beaches and, the, and, and the, the events that happened there. It's like documentary reporting, almost. If you know it, the soundtrack is this kind of almost intense uh, kind of uh, uh, groaning kind of sound, almost, that runs through it. You get a sense of the human cost, People, uh, some of the soldiers just at times uh, will, some of them will die at just points and you think, gosh, that's somebody whose life is gone. Uh, we meet a soldier who is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the, two, the two films are covering the same event, but the tone is very, very different. Now, the reason I've put these here is to go through the Book of Esther and through the first eight chapters that you've been through this past few weeks is like the darkest hour. It's like seeing it through the lens of these characters, uh, and Haman and Mordecai and Esther and the king, and you see it and it's larger than life and there are some comic situations and reversals that happen. It's quite funny at times. And it's like that. And then we get to the last two, this bit here, and it changes dramatically and it is much more like watching Dunkirk. It is like documentary reporting. It is serious. Uh, it covers the details of what happens. It is quite a change of tone. And why? Why change from one to the other? Why do we need that? Why do we have that in our Bibles? I think because for all the humor and the comedy that's in the early part of Esther, this part here, this end, it is a serious, it's a challenging moment for God's people in their history. They come very close to being wiped out. But they are preserved just. They are preserved just. And we're taken through it. Now, it was a long reading. Thank you, Joe, for reading it. Um, but it divides into two, and it's not too hard um, to break it down into two and to see what happens because of that style. So um, the first uh, part, chapter 9, um, we get a summary at the opening. If you've still got your Bibles open, just look at the, the opening verse. tells you the summary that when the 13th day uh, of the month of Adar comes along, You'll remember there was an edict that allowed those who wanted to destroy the Jews to do so, but a second edict had allowed them to defend themselves. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews, they'd hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand and those who hated them uh, were, were defeated. And there's that reversal that we looked at last week, uh, that great reversal that happens. But this time... It's not through kind of comic scenes and, 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 and drama of individuals. This is more like, you have to imagine um, a BBC news correspondent. You know that if you watch the news at times, they say, we now go over to our correspondent who is in, wherever it might be, in this case, Sousa, 
Uh, and the BBC news correspondent will then appear on the scene and they'll, you know, they'll have, they'll have covered the, the events and they take you through it. Uh, so this situation in which there were those who wanted to rise up and destroy the Jews. And you can imagine the correspondent saying, I'm here in Susa. It has been a day of bloodshed. It has been a day of, of strife and tension and uncertainty. Uh, and verse 5, uh, the Jews have struck down their enemies. Those who wanted to rise up and kill them, they have defended themselves. Uh, I can record for you there were 500 men killed in Susa today, and including the 10 sons of Haman. And the correspondent would say, you know, I, uh, this is the hierarchy being taken out. It's been a tense day in Susa. And then uh, a second report would come on the next day uh, after the edict is extended by a day um, and would describe how 300 uh, had then been killed um, on that second day. Another day of bloodshed and uncertainty, uh, a sense of tension for the Jews, those who wanted to destroy them. They have defended, they have fought, uh, there have been casualties. The second day comes as Esther asks for the extension to this edict. It comes in verse 12. The king offers her, what is your request? What is your petition? And Esther asks for an extension. The writer doesn't tell us at all how to view that. It's simply reported. Clearly there was still a threat to the Jewish people. Clearly they were in, in some sense of, uh, of tension and danger. Um, but the, uh, the edict is extended. And we're told as it goes on, meanwhile, uh, verse 16, the remainder of the Jews um, uh, assembled to protect themselves. Um, and the description of the wider provinces, the whole region and wider region, 75,000 of them uh, were killed uh, are those who opposed uh, the Jewish people. Three times we're told during this account, you see it's kind of, it's quite brief, it's quite clipped, it's quite uh, uh, sober. Three times we're told they didn't lay their hands on the plunder. Um, the reason we're told that, it comes in uh, verse uh, 9, it comes in verse 13, um, uh, sorry, verse um, uh, 15, and then in verse um, 16. The reason we're told that, it goes back into Old Testament, further into the um, Old Testament earlier on. It's trying to underline that this wasn't a colonial act. It's trying to underline it wasn't about gaining territory. So to play, put your hands on the plunder was to, to, to try and grab what you could get, to accumulate your wealth and land. Uh, and it's trying to underline that it's not a colonial act. But again, it's simply reported. It's simply placed there. And the writer is trying to give us this sober account of what happens. Uh, in fact, in verses 18 and 19, it even describes um, why... Uh, the city, uh, and the cities in, uh, including Susa, um, they had this two-day uh, um, struggle, and then they feast on the, on the third day, that's the, the 15th, uh, whereas in the rural areas, uh, just the first day, um, and then they feast after that. It's, it's giving you this historical account. It's almost like the, uh, uh, the, the, the um, historical kind of presentation of what uh, goes on. And the underlying message is that the people survive, it was tense. It was uncertain. 
but they have survived. They have been preserved, just. And then he moves on to describe what happens uh, with, God, with, with the Jews, with God's people, uh, in the events that follow. And again, the, the, the star, the way it describes, is, is all about the, uh, the administration of this uh, remembrance that they will have. Verse 20 um, of chapter 9, Mordecai records these events, and he sends letters out to all the provinces to say, we've had relief from our enemies... Uh, verse 22, sorrow has been turned to joy, mourning to a day of celebration, uh, uh, feasting and joy follow. Now we need to institute this as a remembrance, a celebration. So the Jews agree in verse 23, uh, and they agree, and the, and the events are rehearsed, that Haman had uh, wanted to take them on, uh, they had plotted against the Jews, but actually it's come back on his own head, um, and the reason they're going to call this feast Purim is because if you remember back earlier in the story, uh, poor is the lot, the dice that was cast, um, and so they've, the, the cast as to which day they were going to be um, uh, destroyed, um, and so they've turned that into their remembrance. They've turned that around. And what follows in verses 26 to 28 is, it's really prosaic. It's very straight. Uh, he says we should establish this custom, and you, as you heard Joe read it, uh, without fail, we should observe these two days every year. It should be every generation, every family, every province, every city. The days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. If you're ever here on Remembrance uh, Day or Remembrance Sunday here or Remembrance Day, it's, it's like the kinds of words that we say on that kind of occasion. We will remember them. This day will be remembered. It has that kind of feel to it. Uh, Jewish people still celebrate this uh, festival and feast today. Um, as a message came through from uh, somebody who was, uh, who was at Platts uh, until not so long ago uh, with a Jewish background, he described how um, uh, this book of Esther would be read in the synagogues uh, even today. It'll, uh, the, the celebrations will take place. Um, it's still marked uh, and enjoyed as a remembrance. Um, accounts are given of how Jewish people celebrated uh, this feast in this way, particularly through the Nazi era. And you can imagine why it meant so much to them, particularly then. In some respects, you might say, you can imagine it will have a certain resonance for Jewish people even today. There is a remembrance that goes on and still happens. And the question I wanted to ask with us this morning is, why end the book this way? I've tried to convey how different it is to the earlier part of the book. The earlier part of the book is full of these incredible characters and uh, uh, humorous, which you may not have expected to find in the Bible. But then it ends in this way. Why end it this way? What is he trying to tell us about God's people and about God? I think it is this, to show us that... Partial relief has come for God's people, but they are going to still need something more. 
partial relief has come, but they will still need something more. Uh, survival, they have survived. But survival isn't the end. There is still something more that they need. Just for a moment, think back. Um, at this point in their history, God's people are dispersed. They are spread around uh, the, the wider um, Middle Eastern region. If you think for a moment that the, the days of the, uh, the heights of the exodus, of God kind of drawing out his people, uh, of making them into a nation, of giving them David and Solomon and the kingdom and the temple, those days are long gone. The Jewish people at this point, God's people, are scattered. They are a remnant. And here in this book, they are nearly wiped out. They come close to being. But the prophets who were writing uh, um, not too many years before this point and at this point, the prophets, they had promised something far more for God's people than just mere survival, than just making it through. Um, you read in Isaiah and, and other prophets, if you get a chance to look at Isaiah, at some point, Isaiah 32 has a lovely phrase about God's people were, would, would eventually be brought undisturbed rest. Undisturbed rest. Now that's not quite what they have here. The reason I think we're told this in this sort of BBC documentary style is the, the evident threat that is still around them. Uh, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 10, there's a little line in there which is kind of slightly strange. Um, King Xerxes imposed tribute. Um, uh, it's sometimes translated as a tax, imposed tribute, tax throughout the empire. Um, it's sometimes translated forced labor. King Xerxes imposed forced labor on the, uh, uh, the empire uh, that he ruled. This is a pagan king. Uh, the Jews are under this to its distant shores. So it's great that Mordecai is there for God's people, uh, aiding their welfare at the end. Um, it's great that he's able to look after them and speak up for them. But it's as if the writer is saying, yes, God's people are preserved, but it's not complete. It's not full and final relief from their enemies. Their enemies are still around. It's not full and final blessing. It's not complete and wondrous restoration that Isaiah had spoken of. It leaves us wondering where this final relief will come from. So the, the end of the book is this strange mix of being both celebratory yet serious. Celebratory yet serious. And the reason why I mentioned uh, those two films earlier on, in, in some ways, the, the second of the two films, Dunkirk, captures that tone uh, that is, closes out the book of Esther. One that is both celebratory yet serious. So they have been preserved and survived, yet there is still more to come. I'm going to play you a short clip, which is um, just from the closing out of Dunkirk. And the tone of it might help us catch where I think we land the book of Esther. We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. What? We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. 
And even if this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. They have made it back. They have made this extraordinary rescue and they're on the train and they're coming back and there is celebration you can kind of see and kind of catch in the background. Uh, the people are celebrating that they've been rescued. But this is 1940 and there is still much yet to come. Uh, there is celebration yet it is serious. The picture of a burning plane sort of pictures what they've left behind on the beaches and what yet still remains for them to face. There is this celebratory yet serious tone. It captures it really, really well, and the soldier is reading words that Churchill wrote uh, at that point. He's reading them from a newspaper. He says the new, until they wait, there is this sense of struggle until ultimately a new world will step forth to rescue and liberate the old. And I guess as Christians, to draw ourselves in, as Christians we we can read Esther, I encourage you to read Esther like you might watch a movie about Dunkirk. It is a key moment of relief. It is, you know, they have made it. There has been this extraordinary rescue of God's people. It is a celebration and a remarkable victory, but more is still to come. And in fact, I guess the scale of what is needed becomes even clearer by the sense of threats uh, around them. And there is still for God's people here, uh, an enemy still out there. There was still in 1940. And nothing less than a new world, to use that phrase, uh, is needed. And this is where I think that Esther can help us understand our own story. Uh, We're looking back at a part of God's people's history uh, and that particular moment. But it can draw us in because the New Testament describes Christians. If you're a Christian this morning, it describes you as one of the true uh, children of Abraham, one of God's people. That's our lineage, our line, if you like. We go all the way back there. In Christ, we become his children. And for us, you can see that sort of tension, that both celebratory yet serious. For us, the wonderful news is that that new world begins with the arrival of Jesus. It has come in him, and in Christ, we know that new world has begun, but we also know it's not complete until he returns. And we are waiting, in a sense, for that full and final relief and blessing from opposition to God. And if you are somebody who is who perhaps groans and, 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 and under the weight of the world and perhaps senses that you're waiting for this world to be put right, actually seeing where God's people were and just understanding those parts of history can help us think we are waiting for that new world in Christ. If you're somebody who is perhaps caring for an aging parent who groans under the weight of a frail body, waiting for a full and final blessing of a new body and a new resurrection. Uh, If you're one of our pathfinders who are in with us this morning, if you're, uh, perhaps you're at school and uh, you you sense that uh, it is being a Christian there, you you sometimes think, gosh, I'm I'm waiting for, for some kind of relief. It's not an easy place to be. 
That is what we're reminded we have in Christ and is coming in Christ. One day, a new world, a new heaven, a new earth brought by Christ will, if I can use that phrase that was there, will step forth to the rescue and wonderfully liberate this old world and bring full and final blessing for God's people. Should we pray together? Father, as you have given us this book of Esther and its twists and its turns uh, and seeing your sovereign hand in the life of your people, Lord, would it encourage us? Would we understand better how you work where we are uh, in your salvation plan? Lord, would we look and, and lift our eyes to you? Would we know that one day there will be this full and final relief that we can marvel in your son coming? Uh, and bringing in that new world. And Lord, we long for uh, that day when it is complete. In Jesus' name, amen.